Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. Hey, everybody. I'm Nick Latham. And I'm Leah Bonima. And we're the hosts of Were You Raised by Wolves? Each week, we try to make the world a kinder, nicer place. Well, that's the idea, at least. I mean, we try. Have you ever wondered what to do if you're ghosted? Or what to do when a friend asks you to borrow money? Or the proper way to eat Cheetos? You know, the big questions. So please find Were You Raised by Wolves wherever you listen. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. My job, and and I've been very vocal about this, is to zealously represent my client. And if that means that I need additional time or our lawyers need additional time, we need to be provided that time. It's not about widgets getting through a system. How our overloaded system of public defenders risks compromising justice for low-income clients. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Frommer. Here's a stunning fact. By age 23, nearly one in three Americans will be arrested. Often it's for a low-level offense, but what happens to people who manage to get caught up in the court system? For Bill Ward, a teenager in Illinois in the 1970s, the experience ended up shaping his career as an attorney. Um, My mom wouldn't like me saying this, but the, the ultimate reason is I was arrested in 1979 on a charge that was... Uh, not only unfounded, but was inappropriately assessed against me. Um, I had to quit college at the time. I hired a lawyer to represent me. The case was ultimately dismissed, but I had the resources in order to uh, contract with a lawyer to represent me. And that lawyer luckily took a payment and an installment plan um, and quit college and started working construction. I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. At, you know, at that, in 79, I was not quite 19 at that point, um, but ultimately um, chose uh, the, that's the profession I wanted. But I knew at that time when I was faced with that, I watched in court in Markham, Illinois, in Cook County, uh, just the throngs of people and folks who um, um, were asking for someone to represent them. They knew they had the right. They applied for a lawyer. And I wondered what it is that, that we do as a, as, a, uh, as a state or a county to help those folks out, and that was that was the driving force for me. Would you be comfortable in describing what the charge was? Unlawful use of weapon and the possession of stolen property. And the unlawful use of weapon was a souvenir baseball bat that was found underneath the, the uh, seat of my truck, and the possession of stolen property was a friend of mine's driver's license uh, that was found in, in, underneath the seat of my truck. And they called my friend up and said, did you know that Bill Ward had your driver's license? He said no, and I was charged with possession of stolen property. And when they found the souvenir baseball bat, when he opened the door and found that, he ordered me out of the car with his gun drawn and me on the side of the road in Flossmoor, Illinois, and said that this is a weapon uh, and uh, stand up a spread eagle against the car, had me drop my pants to search me for other weapons. And next thing I knew, I was in jail in Flossmoor, Illinois. Is possession of a baseball bat typically deemed uh, possession of a weapon? Uh, I would think not. <laughs> um, uh, the um, I have no idea why that happened. I couldn't begin to tell you other than I had long hair and I was driving a pickup truck in Flossmoor, Illinois, and ultimately pulled over 
uh, for a reason that was uh, way back when that you're supposed to have safety stickers on your truck to pass a safety examination for the truck to be legally operating on the streets. Um, how he saw that from his vantage point to this day, I'll never know. Uh, but that's how the whole process started and ended up in jail. Although Bill Ward managed to obtain a lawyer, not everyone has the wherewithal to do so. Fans of police dramas have heard the Miranda recitation, you have the right to remain silent. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. But in practice, things aren't always as straightforward as that. For one thing, it's not uncommon for defendants to languish behind bars for weeks before even meeting their attorney. And for many indigent defendants, the lawyer they have access to has a crushing caseload. Bill Ward, now in Minneapolis, remembers. It was dumbfounding to me as to how, as a, um, a person being accused, how these folks ever felt that they were being heard or um, any way the lawyer could remember their case, let alone their name. And invariably, uh, in the days I was there, people would come in, I'm looking for, and they'd, call, they'd shout out a name. Somebody would raise their hand and they'd walk them out, you know, outside into the, uh, the hallway to, and they would find a conference room to talk to people. But it was so, you know, it was like going to uh, the DMV and, 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 and pulling a number uh, and, and, and trying to get your driver's license. Very, very impersonal, very uh, a, a, a poor lack of communication, uh, certainly not a client-centered way of doing things, in, in my opinion at that time. Today, Bill Ward serves as the Minnesota State Public Defender, a public agency of more than 400 attorneys who represent low-income defendants. The right to an attorney if you can't afford one was established in 1963 by the U.S. Supreme Court. It involved the trial of a Florida man named Clarence Earl Gideon, who stood accused of breaking and entering a pool hall with intent to commit petty larceny. He was portrayed by Henry Fonda in the 1980 film Gideon's Trumpet. Finch Vitti? I'm not ready, Your Honor. Why aren't you ready? I don't have a lawyer. Why not? Didn't you know your case was set for trial today? Yes, sir, I knew. Why then did you not secure counsel and be prepared to go to trial? I don't have the money. I don't have any money. Gideon was a, was a, uh, a promise uh, based upon a premise, but there was never a, a funding mechanism put into place. Uh, we were told that you had to provide these lawyers initially for felony cases, then, of course, uh, misdemeanor, and we have gross misdemeanors here, and then for juvenile. But there was never a funding mechanism. It was left to the states. Uh, so without a federal government oversight and, and, you know, I mean, there are those who say we're tired of the government telling us how to do things, but without that oversight, we left it to the states to provide for a constitutionally guaranteed right. Um, and, um, you know, clearly we've been described as the bastard stepchild that nobody really cared about, and we were never really good at advocating on our behalf. I mean, certainly initially we're getting much, much better. Um, but that, I think, has been part of the reason and part of the problem over time. Our system of public defenders is widely regarded as malnourished due to inadequate funding. On the 50th anniversary of the Gideon decision, Eric Holder, then U.S. Attorney General, pronounced the system to be in a state of crisis. In other words, that the right to a fair trial, as guaranteed by the Constitution's Sixth Amendment, is under siege. The problem is more complex than money. 
even in jury selection, the court, uh, the judge informs that uh, just because a person's sitting in court here in trial doesn't mean they're guilty of the case. They're presumed innocent. Um, I think uh, if, and, and I'm sure you have, but certainly all of us that do this work uh, and many, many different social functions, why do you do what you do for a living? You know, why would you represent those people? And literally, I'm putting those people in quotes. Uh, there is this presumption that they've, if they've been charged, that they've, they've done the crime. So um, there is then this bias or the stereotypical belief that they shouldn't have any assistance, that the, you know, they're the ones who made their bed, they have to sleep, sleep in it, that sort of attitude. Many people accused of crimes are in fact guilty, but the whole point of our justice system is to sort out who's innocent and who's not. Attorney Ezekiel Edwards in New York directs the Criminal Law Reform Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. We see time and time again the presumption of innocence turned on its head in many of our courts uh, when the defendants are poor uh, and particularly when they're people of color. Uh, and charged with crimes. And so uh, when it comes to deciding whether to um, release somebody uh, pending trial where they are still presumed innocence, overwhelmingly uh, courts decide to hold and detain people unnecessarily. Uh, our pre-trial unconvicted jail population would make us the fourth largest prison population alone uh, in the world. We have um, uh, hundreds of thousands of people sitting in jails unconvicted. And so if that's not evidence that uh, we don't practice the presumption of innocence that we preach, I don't know what is. Uh, I think there are certain people in certain places who retain that cloak of innocence. Uh, I think people who come into court with private counsel who is uh, well-equipped to um, focus on their case and make all necessary and uh, um, uh, persuasive arguments and motions, I think that person's presumption of innocence gets respected far more than what we see in most of the uh, criminal courts, uh, you know, from Baltimore to Ferguson, um, from uh, Fresno, California, California to Idaho. I suppose the most egregious injustice would be for an indigent defendant to be wrongly convicted when they're in fact innocent for lack of adequate legal representation. How often does wrongful conviction happen in the United States in the case of indigent defendants? Well, we first certainly know that wrongful conviction um, happens uh, far more than anyone wants to recognize. The fantastic work of the Innocence Project has documented hundreds of cases just through DNA evidence alone. Uh, and of course, many cases do not have um, the benefit of DNA evidence where people have been wrongfully convicted, wrongfully sentenced to death. In many of those cases, when they look back at what possibly went wrong, although there are often a number of factors, one consistent factor is that the lawyers at the trial level were inadequate, insufficient, and did a woeful job of establishing uh, reasonable doubt, let alone the person's innocence at trial. So that's one of the more egregious examples of the harm. But I would add that there are many other harms that um, result from not having access to meaningful counsel. If you have a lawyer at your first appearance making persuasive arguments for why you should be released pre-trial, you are much like, more likely to be released. Uh, the harms of pretrial detention, losing your job, losing uh, parental rights over your children, uh, losing housing, 
uh, are astronomical. Um, it also will have significant impact on the ultimate outcome of your case. Um, so having a lawyer who can not only at your first appearance, but throughout the case, argue for your release, let alone investigate the case, talk to witnesses, prep you on what's happening, talk to the client about strategy, and then be competent at trial, call experts, uh, makes a world of difference uh, to both whether that person stays in and the ultimate outcome. And so while the innocence cases are, I think, the most egregious example of what can happen when people spend decades in prison for crimes they didn't commit because they didn't have competent counsel, there are people languishing in our jails pre-trial simply because there's no one advocating for their release, there's no one challenging the evidence against them, there's no one plea bargaining with prosecutors. And that happens at a clip of thousands of thousands of times every day across the country and is really as big a concern um, and as significant a harm in totality as the fact of, let's say, wrongful convictions that we may sometimes hear about. The consequences of these conditions can be dire. A 2014 study calculated that one in 25 defendants sentenced to death in the U.S. is later shown to be innocent. Wrongful conviction also means the guilty party goes free. Minnesota Public Defender Bill Ward. The American Bar Association recommends uh, no more than 150 felony cases a year. Per, per lawyer? Per lawyer. Uh, a felony case could be from a murder down to a felony theft or a felony DWI. So 150 of those cases a year. If you look at, um, you know, on average, maybe people are working 1,900 hours a year. And, and um, that's, uh, I'm talking about eight-hour days without much in the way of vacation or sick days or just talking about holidays and weekends off. Um, eight-hour days, that, that breaks down to 12 and a half hours per felony case. And, and that, to me, is not adequate. Uh, if, if you came to me and said, hey, I'm in trouble, this is the felony charge, and I told you, you know what, I can do what you can, uh, but the best I can do for you is 12 and a half hours, um, you know, really, what is that and saying? And does, does that include time spent in court? Yeah, that includes, that's 1,900 hours work hours a year, and if it's 150 cases, and, and that's the ABA standard. So and, and that does not take into account the uh, extensive need to investigate these investigate cases. Investigate trial preparation, trial, uh, uh, omnibus hearings, pretrial motions, um, research, writing, uh, client communication, jail visits, uh, being on the road here. Uh, so many of our lawyers travel from you know, county to county to different courthouses because um, so much of the state is very rural. Uh, jail visits that are 30 miles, 40 miles, 50 miles away. It doesn't account for any of that. So ultimately, those standards are incredibly difficult to meet, and we're not even at 65% of what those standards are. And, and I think it's just a, a better way for um, all of us to look at the hours that are necessary to do, you know, not, a, not an adequate job or, or an effective job. Um, I want, and I know our lawyers, all of our staff wants to be zealous advocates, 12 and a half hours per felony case doesn't cut it. Four and a half hours per misdemeanor case doesn't cut it. So, um, and these days, forensic science has become so advanced and complex that there's many additional hours of staff time to kind of meet those needs. It's an enormous issue for us. I mean, Again, when these standards came about is, is a couple of decades ago, um, and our, our own board adopted these standards in the 90s. But, I mean, as you just mentioned, think about how different the practice of law has become for the criminal defense practitioner. 
Um, you know, DNA went from something that people didn't understand uh, or trust to now they, they trust it, but ultimately there are, are um, uh, advances in DNA that are based upon certain, um, theoretically, certainly based upon certain scientific methodology. Uh, but who's, who's making that, those determinations? We're examining the constitutional right to a fair trial in America and the ability to be competently represented by an attorney, even if you can't afford one. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Defending the Poor, and to obtain or download an audio copy, please visit humanmedia.org. Ezekiel Edwards of the National ACLU. When we have done investigations or our affiliates in states around the country, uh, we have consistently found this problem. And so this is not uh, uh, relegated to one pocket of the country. It's not relegated to one part of a given state. Um, it is something that we have found uh, throughout many states um, and throughout the, all of those states. And so, again, whether we have looked at you know the West Coast with Washington and uh, and uh, California with reports that have been out in Nevada and Utah documenting that uh, in court after court, uh, poor people are not receiving their Sixth Amendment rights. If you go down and look at our lawsuits in Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, lawsuits in Georgia, uh, if you look at Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Michigan, um, uh, if you look at problems as documented in Missouri, um, this this is happening everywhere. And if you think of how many courts there are in all of those states and the number of people we process, millions of people every year charged with misdemeanor offenses, if you think about uh, you know, the fact that we have almost 500,000 people sitting in jail, um, uh, many of whom, two, over two-thirds of whom are pretrial, um, you get a sense of the impact that um, the failure to provide injury defense is having. So it's happening in terms of the number of people affected, hundreds of thousands, um, and I would say you know, tens of thousands every day. Um, and truth is, if you walk into, if you just, if you were to, let's say, go to Mississippi and walk into their municipal courts or walk into the municipal courts or magistrate courts of South Carolina, you will see people who are getting charged and prosecuted for criminal offenses that will give them criminal records that will stay with them for the rest of their lives with a range of harmful collateral consequences who uh, do not have the benefit of counsel. Um, and if it's that easy to find, um, you can, it, it, it's a, it's a um, I think, a telling sign of how pervasive the problem is. All right, let's talk about the workload carried by these public defenders who, from what you're saying, are in many, many cases overloaded. What toll does that take on the public defenders themselves, the lawyers, when they are so uh, excessively overburdened? Uh, I think uh, having excessive caseloads and being consistently and chronically underfunded uh, takes a massive toll. Um, many public defenders go into the work because they want to do justice and they want to uh, uh, represent people zealously. 
And I think what many of them quickly find is that when you are carrying caseloads of two, three, four, five hundred cases, uh, you simply cannot provide the type of representation that you want, let alone that your clients are entitled to. You can't do the investigation. You can't hire experts. Uh, you can't spend time with them uh, that you uh, want. And that is um, incredibly demoralizing and deflating uh, because case outcomes uh, tend to become quite predictable uh, and it's not a good feeling. Uh, I think many um, certainly many conscious uh, uh, and well-meaning public defenders recognize that they are not providing the kind of representation that they would want and that they would want their family members to receive. Uh, and uh, it's why one of the problems in public defender offices where they exist is very high turnover, um, because that operating under that kind of pressure caseload um, and, and uh, I, frankly, I think kind of sense of guilt um, is a reason that many people don't stay at the job. I've had lawyers in my office crying uh, they, you know, about um, they, they just can't do this anymore, uh, the stress, uh, the, uh, the birthdays that have been missed, the vacations they haven't taken, um, you know, not taking off sick days because the case was set for a sentencing or they have a trial that's set. Uh, it, it takes a huge personal toll. I mean, anybody who says it doesn't, I think is lying to you a little bit. reason most public defenders put up with difficult working conditions is that they're true believers in fair play, ensuring a level playing field for their low-income clients. Because in some ways, the odds can be significantly in favor of the prosecution, armed with its considerably greater resources. Bill Ward. I mean, if you look at national or um, you know, statewide studies, the, it, it's billions more uh, that, uh, monies towards prosecution of offenses versus towards uh, um, public uh, defense or public uh, defender jurisdiction and agencies. There's, there's absolutely no comparison. Um, I know a lot of county attorneys who will say, well, we also represent the cities or municipalities, so we have lawyers assessed, you know, assigned to those sorts of cases. Um, there's no comparison between the two. And, and what's I, uh, many people, and this is on us too, fail to recognize is that when a case comes in, it's not just the, the, the county attorney's office or the state's attorney's office or DA, depending on your jurisdiction. They also have the sheriff's police who can do investigations. The state police do investigations. Local police. They have, I mean, they have all sorts of resources. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. I mean, there are so many different arms that they can use and utilize in, in, the, um, in the prosecution of a case that we don't have. Now, and I'll put it in perspective, our last calendar year, we had approximately, we were assigned, we were appointed to approximately 145,000 cases in the state. 145,000 cases. Now, mind you, I told you we have, on the district court level, just over 400 lawyers. Um, 145,000 cases. I have 44 investigators for 145,000 cases. Think of how many thousands of police officers and, 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 and other investigators that before the case is even thought about charging, the investigation is done beforehand, then they get it here and all of a sudden we're provided a complaint and, and the discovery, well, here's the charge, what do you want to do on it? 145,000 cases, 44 investigators. And I think that is the best way of kind of understanding this, the disparity, how under-resourced we actually are, and to do our, our due diligence in representing our clients. Which will have the effect 
of only compounding the burden on this office and and, and compounding the cost to the to the state. Right? It's so much more cost efficient to spend the money up front uh, than sending people to prison and, and, and the daily costs of prison uh, and, and all that entails or people languishing in jails. I call it McJustice. It, it, it's, it's, it's meet them and plead them. And, and um, it's a culture change that, w- that, that we are, as public defenders, are, are guilty of participating in. Um, but um, our, we have changed our culture and our agency that we are not just going to stand by and just be a part of this machinery that, 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 that just, uh, um, you know, it's meet and greet and meet and plead and, and move on. Uh, we and, and, and by that you mean that an actual deep understanding of a client's case uh, doesn't develop because it's such a almost factory-like process. Absolutely. It's about the, the, the criminal court system understanding that uh, our clients are human beings, uh, that we need to treat them with dignity and respect. Uh, it's not just about due process, it's about procedural fairness, that they feel that they are being heard. Um, too often, uh, our clients, uh, understandably so, come in and say, it's the public pretender, right? It's the penitentiary deliverer. They don't care about me. You're just paid by the state. And, you know, if, if I'm being appointed a lawyer in the criminal court system, I don't blame them for that because they, it's a lack of trust. And, and, and it's our job to make sure we work with the client, communicate with the client, uh, take the time that we need to explain what's going on to the client, return phone calls, go to the jail. Um, and unless we do that, the client, uh, rightfully so, feels that their voice wasn't heard. So, you know, ultimately, do they feel they've gotten a fair shake? Um, and So they, in effect, because you're the closest absolutely. representative to yeah. them, they end up blaming you. Right, and compound that with um, how many individuals are in jails now with mental health issues uh, that, you know, um, uh, you know we, have, we have so many folks that we work with that, that are good at masking um, any mental health issue because they, it's not something they want to be known. They don't want to be caught up in a system where they, they'll be evaluated for competency or other mental health issues. Um, and if we don't spend time with them, enough time with them, we're not really going to see uh, or understand deep down. We're not taking the time or we don't have the time to ask the right questions. So it's impossible really to um, get through the layers of individuals to truly understand um, you know, why they're in the, in, the, in the system in the first place. Is it housing issues that we can be addressing? Is it mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues? Uh, and all of us need to do a better job at, uh, at, at um, addressing that. Otherwise, unfortunately, our, our, our citizens are going to be coming back and back and forth. But there are so many other things that can be done. You know, we have cases that, that, that shouldn't be misdemeanors, that should be petty uh, cases, certainly. Um, you know, we, we, did a, we took a, a, um, a beginning step on a, what's been described as a historical um, approach to our drug laws in Minnesota. So do you see decriminalizing of certain offenses as a key part of fixing this? Um, without doubt. And, and that's just not me. That's, that's a study after study about whether it's the new Jim Crow, which is, I think, a very apt description as to what's going on in, in not just our state but in the United States. If you really truly look at the laws, 
once someone is in this system, it's so difficult to get out, to extricate yourself from the tentacles of the criminal court system. Fines and fees and obligations. How long are you on probation? Um, you know, can that probation be extended? What are the conditions under probation? How much do you have to pay to get through alcohol or drug treatment? Uh, and then just inundate them with additional fines and costs. And, and it becomes a, a system where only the wealthy or the, moderate, the people of moderate means can get away from the tentacles. And, and the people who are impoverished are forever stuck in the system. Bill Ward, Minnesota State Public Defender in Minneapolis. We also heard from Ezekiel Edwards in New York, director of the Criminal Law Reform Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freud. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Hilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to David Carroll, Daniel Kolb, Jeffrey Burkhardt, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Defending the Poor, is Humankind Program number 252. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.